Hello and welcome to Conspiracy What? Welcome back to our spooky October spook fest. It's called Spooktober. That, I couldn't remember what it was called, so I went with whatever. Uh, So welcome back to Spooktober, and this is our final topic. Welcome to the finale. Yeah. I'm Cameron, and next to me is Finale. (laughs) It works. And that very sarcastic laugh is Jen. Hello. (laughs) Again. Back for more. Cool. This time we're doing spooky. I guess the last one we did with you was sort of spooky, but it was more like it's a different aliens. Kind of spooky. Totes. Should we say what we're doing? Or are we just going to like allude to it? For well, a really long I was time? going to, instead of just directly saying it, I wanted to play a little song for everybody and it'll get us into the spirit. Some of the things this thing says is the best. Yeah. And I don't know if any of you recognize that, but this is the Enfield Poltergeist. Correct. That is. And that voice was supposedly coming out of an 11 year old. Yeah. It's just been super creep fest for us. Hooray. Hooray. So we're doing it right. Happy I Halloween. I will report that, you know, knock on wood. Robert the doll has done nothing to us. Uh, Are we recording? <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> jokes on us. Nobody die in the middle, okay? Yeah. Uh, but no no clumsy family heirloom breaking or anything like that. I don't think so, we have any family heirlooms. That's good. Anyway, so this is probably the most uh, well-documented case of any kind of haunting in the history of documenting haunting cases. Um this includes there like are a bunch of videos there's tons of photos i think um the guy that did this said there was like 180 hours of audio recordings which is insane um there were tests done on the girls to like make sure everything was legit that's that supposedly brought back results yeah there's a whole lot of evidence uh there the in in there being a whole lot of evidence, we'll talk about this too. There's also weirdly a lacking amount of that evidence public, it seems. Because I will say you cannot find 180 minutes of audio yeah. public. The most I've been able to find is five straight minutes. And well, I'm sure all it. 180 minutes is not all useful. Well, no. But I mean, you would imagine that a lot of it is. They did a lot of discussions with her. There's some like different types of research that they did that you can't really find. And on top of that, there are a lot more photos in this case than in usual poltergeisty supernatural haunted cases. Yeah. That said though, that's definitely something we talk about a lot too. Like, yeah, oh, there's no evidence, but this time there is, there is this time. But that said, some of the more interesting evidence that they talk about is also impossible to find. So we will talk yeah. about that as well. Cause that's kind of the weird thing in this is that you're like, oh, evidence. And then you're like, that's not the evidence I want to see, though. I want to see some of the other stuff you're talking about, like the chairs flying through the air and stuff like that. But we'll get into it. Uh, The main thing with this is it focuses on a single family, the Hodgson family, 
1977 until 78 or 79. I read 78, but I see we have 79 in our notes. And why is it called Enfield Poltergeist? Because it takes place in Enfield. <laughs> Which is London. Yeah, yeah. I... I I saw this whole list of how you actually call where they're from. It's Brimsdown, Enfield, London, England. And I'm trying to figure out what Brimsdown and Enfield are. Sections. <laughs> they, they like to section off London and have weird names. Yeah, but anyway, it's in there. And Enfield must be the main section because <laughs> that's why it's called Enfield. Um, it's considered a borough. Okay. So. Got it. Wait, Enfield is? Yes, it okay. is considered a borough. Also, it is not Enfield, Connecticut, just in case you didn't hear us say London. Just reiterate, it did oh, not take yeah. place in America. It has nothing to do At with At the very beginning of my research, I was like, oh, this is American? Because <laughs> <laughs> if you type in Enfield first, that's what you get. Yeah. Now you know geography. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Um, this family was all supposedly haunted by a poltergeist, which, as they say several times in this case, poltergeist means noisy ghost. It's a it's, German word. Yeah. And so this supposed poltergeist attached itself it's seemingly, seemingly specifically to Janet, and then kind of like Margaret, the other sister, who was older, but like mostly just on the two sisters. Um, should we talk about why? Sure. Sure. Why? Because poltergeists are fascinated by menstruation. And Margaret... <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Margaret's older sister was going through puberty, and she had begun menstruating. And I guess historically, there are many, many cases that poltergeist hauntings start... With a with an adolescent girl who's going through puberty. Yeah, and another funny thing with this case is apparently the mother had no idea what the word puberty meant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. the paranormal investigators had to like explain to her what that meant. No, the word puberty, right? She knew like like my daughter is you know on her period. Didn't yeah. know like yeah no the word puberty she was just, <laughs> just really she, weird she understood the the idea of it because Hopefully. they explained it to her and she said oh that and then she confirmed that margaret had begun that mm -hmm. and then later on we will see janet okay so in my research i honestly can't remember where i found this <laughs> but there was this um, gentleman named Frank Podmore who lived through the late 19th century and he was a member of the Society for Cyclical Research and he called poltergeists naughty little girl syndrome which is gross. A little bit. Because of the documentation being like oh these young women, young girls who are going through puberty are being haunted, but it seems like they're just acting out. So he called it not like he called it not a little girl syndrome. Yeah. Actually I think that was in the book because I feel like I remember reading that in there. It's Step really in the right hard. direction. 
find. I'm glad you found it through the library system because I it's not on Audible. And it was like even through Amazon, it would have been like through a third party seller. So yeah, it's one of those like, it's just one of those books that we come across and like doing this podcast in general that are like nearly impossible to find. Anyway, Poltergeist, uh, supposedly naughty little girl syndrome could be relevant to this kind of gross way to put it. But laying it out, we have the whole family. There's, uh, there are four of them in the house. There's the mom whose name is Peggy and her husband recently left for various other women. (laughs) Um, People, people he was already dating and bringing into the home consistently. Yeah. So basically he's just kind of an asshole. Yeah. Um, There's Margaret, the oldest sister. Um, There's Janet. She, as I put in the notes, is the poltergeist house, uh, the main girl, seemingly in all of these cases. There's Johnny, who is kind of just the other kid. Uh, He was about 10 in this, during this instance. He is the real ghost of the story because you hear about him less than you hear about the ghost itself. And there are pictures that he is in, like while things are happening and he's in the picture and they're like, oh my God, the sisters. The most famous levitating photo he's in. He's, in the background. He's next to the sister in the bed, but oftentimes they like mess with the photo's lighting and he's just like taken out of the photo for some reason. Yeah, nobody so, really mentions that there is a third child. Right. Who also yes, supposedly... I said because he wasn't haunted. <laughs> I guess. But supposedly later he did see things. Um, but yeah, there's, there's the secret third brother. And then there was another kid named Billy who was only like seven and they had sent him away to boarding school around the same time that this started happening. Yeah, it was which is weird just before. They never really read. said why, because he was smart and coherent. And I guess, you know what, I'm guessing, because so the house they lived in was like government housing, like um, government assisted living, yeah. low housing. Maybe they sent him, I don't know how much boarding schools cost, but maybe she sent him away, like, to, so there was one less person in the house, one less mouth to feed. Yeah, maybe. So, supposedly, he was sent away because of a psychiatrist. Because of a psychiatrist? This factors in later, because uh, what ends up happening is Peggy becomes afraid of, psych- of psychiatrists, and the whole idea of sending your kid to a therapist. Be- because Billy was sent to one, and that therapist took him from the family and forced him to be sent away. So that's why he kind of disappears. uh, And he is literally not a factor after this. I couldn't find any information about him. He goes away and he doesn't come back, which tells me that he wasn't just sent to a boarding school. He was pulled from the family and not allowed to come back, which means there's probably a deeper reason about yeah. why most likely lit, stemming from abuse or something of that nature. Yeah. But it's, it's really odd that he specifically is the one that was pulled away. Yeah. That's the one that I find really strange. The youngest one. But yeah, so he's, he was gone. I mean, he literally is not in the picture. I even found interviews with the family later and they still do not mention that brother. Hmm. Billy doesn't. Yeah. So basically forget lives. that we even said Billy because now he doesn't matter. Yeah. Because they all <laughs> forgot Billy too. So Okay. Uh, how did this, how did the ghost thing start? I refused to watch The Conjuring 2. However, I did find 
a TV series that the BBC produced that then Guy Playfair said, do not watch it. But I watched the first episode to get kind of a visual. Okay. Um, but yeah, basically the girls are, they share a bedroom, they're in bed, they're, they're messing around, but then the dresser starts moving. Like it, it just starts wobbling. Not, nothing like, it's very subtle. And then, and then the mom comes in to yell at them to be like, stop fucking around. <laughs> and the dresser, the dresser moves in front of her. Yeah. And so he starts wigging out. Was it that night she gets the neighbors to try it? I, I remember that it was like, yeah, call the police, get the neighbors because they needed, they were having trouble getting people to like take them seriously. Yeah. So like, um, apparently they, so like she, she saw the dresser move, right. And she was able to move it back. And then the second time it moved, she couldn't move it back. Like somebody was pushing like yeah. against her. Yeah. And so they like all were like, hell nah, and went downstairs, um, all in their pajamas and stuff. And they, did they hear the knocking at this point too? Like the four knocks? I think that was, this was the same time. They claimed the there was knocking happened. around the same time. Yeah. yeah. And so they were just kind of like, I guess they, so the mom's sister or brother-in-law, I don't remember which one, lived oh, yeah. like- lived down the street or something yeah it was only like a couple houses down but they were like ah we don't want to bother them so we're gonna bother the neighbors (laughs) so they like brought him over and he checked over the house and couldn't find anything wrong but then they're still hearing the knocking and stuff Mm -hmm. um so i think then they called the cops and so the cops came over and they did the kind of the same thing that the neighbor did uh where they looked around the house and they checked for anything wrong and they like check the pipes and all kinds of stuff they're like supposedly really thorough and they still couldn't figure out where the knocking was coming from so that like places a bunch of witnesses in the story that all like saw and heard the same thing which is something that this case really builds off of because there were like what 30 or like there's like a lot of people so yeah that that's by the end of the first month there were a roughly 30 people who had witnessed this including the family mm-hmm. themselves uh but i mean you're talking about law enforcement i think they said that one of the like healthcare people for one of the children also had come in and witnessed it you had news reporters you had photographers, like friends, and like people friends, across the street. Family, everybody had witnessed this event of knocking and things moving and being thrown around. So I wanted to bring up this real quick. This is something I found out later. It's not something that's in the original reporting of this at all because it came from a uh, talk with Janet that the Daily Mail did years after all of this was over. It was sometime in like around 2010, I think. I remember right. So like way later. Way, 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 way later. Uh, She claimed that something they had not talked about and she didn't want to talk about with her mom around is that she and Margaret had used a Ouija board right around this time. So this is something that no one had reported on. No one had mentioned. I hadn't heard anything about it. It's not in the book. But this is something that she claims now did happen then. And that this kind of started off the whole event, according to her. I think it's weird. I I mean, she says it's true, and Janet's the closest thing you can get to this case. But 
I think it's weird that they never found a Ouija board mm-hmm. ever. Uh, and they took everything out of the room at one point too. That happens as well. So at one point they removed literally everything from the room and they still don't find a Ouija board, which is very strange to me. I almost wonder if Janet started talking about that later in life to give more validity to it after people, you know, after there were more, there was more, um, what documentation of other hauntings that, and people trying giving more validity to the Ouija board. So maybe she just decided to add it into the story. Yeah. I also feel fair. like, cause she was really involved um, with the making of the conjuring. I don't know. I kind of feel like she just got like a big head about it, but we can talk about that in the conclusion. Yeah. We'll, we'll <laughs> go into it, but I think you're right, Jen. I think there's a good chance that that's probably what happened. That's kind of what I got from it is that it's something that not only did we, were we only able to hear about later, it's something that might have only been a thing later. Yeah. It's hard to say. What, one thing you will get from this is that Janet and Margaret are not consistent at all. And they're still talking about it. And yeah. They don't shut up about it. They, Margaret never shut up about it. And Janet started talking about it again once her mom passed away. That was the only time she said she was willing to talk about it. She said mm-hmm. she didn't because she didn't want her mom to have to live through that consistently. And then there's her sister doing interviews with her mom. <laughs> so yeah, Margaret and Janet are two different people. But like we said, the cops came out, right? Mm-hmm. And that starts off the witness reports from people that are deemed trustworthy, yeah. basically. Which is something that doesn't usually happen in things like this. You know, usually they're like, oh, we didn't call the cops because we didn't want them to think we were crazy. But this time, somebody actually did something right, and they called the fucking police. Like, hey, is somebody doing something? Did somebody break into the house? Is somebody in the walls knocking? Yeah, Um, and it came out of our very masculine friend here who was always wearing plaid in every interview I saw from. Looked like a lumberjack. Who? With no teeth. The neighbor. Oh. Uh, He. This came out of the neighbor. He called the cops because... He thought that there, the knocking from the walls was actually coming from a person inside the walls. So he thought someone had come into their home. I actually am thinking about this. You know how we were saying the little brother was like the real ghost? Yeah. What if they actually had a way to get in the walls? Because the little brother was like never in any of the stories. Oh. Yeah, I thought about it. But I feel like mm-hmm. he was in the walls. Maybe this is better documented in the book. How did they get in touch with Maurice Gross? So it's kind of, it seems kind of like a chain reaction kind of thing, right? Yeah. Where, so the cops are there and I want to mention too, that this is where they first see furniture move, like other than the dresser, because they see like a chair move and nobody's around it and it moves like four feet supposedly over or like one meter as they say. And supposedly goes about an inch and a half off the ground, but the police woman that saw this didn't, she wasn't sure about that. Yeah. And the man that was with her said nothing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. In the interview, he just kind of, like, stares forward, like, he officially. nothing to say. They apparently <laughs> witnessed this phenomenon, and he's just standing there, cold as ice. Yeah. No I'll, emotion. I'll try to remember to post that little clip. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's that. So then, um, so then they call reporters, right? Because then the cops really aren't doing anything. Um, so they call people from the Daily Mirror. And so there's a photographer and a reporter that were sent out. And apparently they were only sent out, sent out because 
because like they were really slow on stories and they were like, I don't know, I'll go take this ghost story and like fill mm-hmm. in some time for us. Right. And so I guess initially when the photographer and the reporter were there, um, nothing happened. They were just kind of standing around. I remember them saying like, we had a cup of tea, and you know, we decided to leave. And then apparently right after they walked out the door, stuff started happening again. So they called them back in before they even got to the car. That happened a lot in, in the interviews with um, Guy Playfair. He kept saying that, like, even with his back turned, the poltergeist would, would act up. But the minute he turned his head back to Janet, it would stop. Yeah. And so this, this is apparently, like, also when the Legos started being chucked at people's heads. Mm-hmm. And marbles, too, I think. So apparently when they came back in, like, Legos and marbles were just flying across the room, like, which it reminds me of a movie, but I really, oh, is it just Poltergeist when they open the door and, like, all the toys are, like, flying around the room? (laughs) Yeah. That's kind of what it makes me think of, but, like, that's a much more dramatic version. So I want to say with this one, this is one of the things, so there is photo evidence of this. There is. Mm -hmm. There is. 100% 100% okay. photo evidence of this because the photos were taken at the time this was happening. However, those photos don't show anything in the air. There are like three spots on one of the photos that they claim was that like the object flying through the air. Orbs. They don't claim orbs. They claim <laughs> that they're like legitimate objects flying through the air. But you can't tell that's what it is. And while they say that everybody's freaking out in the photos, and we can put these up so you can look at it yourself, you look at the photos and the people are, there's like two guys in the back of the room and they're just chilling. Yeah, the one has their arms crossed. For a Lego tornado, these two dudes are calm. They're like like that psychopathic type of calm. Was it really a Lego tornado or was it just one at a time? I mean, the way they made it, it, it's impossible. They're like, Legos are flying through the air, which makes it sound like a Lego tornado to me, but. Legos and marbles and things. Oh my. Yeah, the photo, are there photos in the book? Did they? There's a small section of photos in the book. Nothing crazy, but I was trying to see if the book had it. Yeah. Isn't that one? I saw some of the photos, but I didn't see that one. If you look next to the box, you'll see a black dot down there. They uh, claim that's one of the objects. Hmm. Looks more okay. like a light switch. It looks like a lens flare. <laughs> but my favorite thing is how everyone is so chill, but then the mom is like freaking the fuck out in the corner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll put those photos up so you can see them. Because I feel like it's important to see them. Did we mention that the photographer got smashed right over the eye with a Lego? Yeah. We did? No. Well, now But he did. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, so apparently a Lego, uh, just one little brick, just went right at him, hit him in like the eyebrow, uh, just right above the, the camera, and they he claims that the only people that were actually in range at the right angle to throw this at him like they did was the other reporter and one of the neighbors, which are the two that you can see in the back of the photo behind the mom losing her shit. I mean, if I saw Legos flying through my house, I'd probably be losing my shit too. I know, but it's just, it's just weird because she's the only one losing her shit. 
So they claim that the kids weren't in range to throw the Legos at them, which then raises the question, if it's not a ghost, who did it? Mm-hmm. Was it a neighbor that was in on it? Okay, so who knows? in addition to the Lego throwing, I have to bring this up because I want to know if it's in the book. So last podcast on the left is the only source I found that talked about this, that eventually the poltergeist started messing with poop. Is that in the book? Not that I saw. I didn't finish the book, but that said, I did skim through the the last half of it. I I saw a part where it supposedly had flushed the toilet with nobody in there and opened the bathroom door. That's all I saw that had anything related to that. (laughs) I never saw a shit flinging ghost. So yeah, they talk about this for quite a while on the second episode of last last podcast on the left about this. And I'm just like, okay, I have done a pretty good amount of research aside from reading the book. Where the hell did they find this information? Right. Yeah. Sounds like a Henry Zabrowski edition. (laughs) That's what that sounds like. It kind of feels like they started adding. No, I just like, where did they? Okay. So not relevant. <laughs> what was what was the story? What that it was just being thrown oh, around like everything else? Like there would be um so it started with like finding it on the floor. The mom would find it on the floor and she'd get mad at the kids. But then after she got mad at the kids, she would witness it just like happening on its own. So are they really it, trying to say the poltergeist is taking a dump on the floor? Well, that, and then it started being an issue where it was, like, smeared all over the walls, which is, oh, like, gross. Yeah. That would be, like, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, fuck that. <laughs> We're moving. I don't give a shit. But if it's not <laughs> in the book, honestly don't know where they would have found that information. So. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. I mean... It's hard to say because something that gross might have been omitted just because it's too sensational. I pretty much, I think I listened to every audio clip I could find that from Guy Playfair and Mm -hmm. any like video footage of the the young ladies being interviewed and I never, never came across that. So anyway, yeah, so... I cross-checked it, and there's nothing. So, <laughs> But back to things that aren't shit-related, um, the Legos and marbles flying through the air were also weird for the fact that when the, like, the marbles, when they hit the ground, they didn't roll or like move or anything. They would just kind of hit the ground like they were like 10 pounds made of metal and would not move at all. And I guess, was it gross that tried to reenact this like several times, just like chucking marbles on the floor, like dropping them from heights. And he failed to, um, to make it happen again. Mm-hmm. Recreate. Yeah. 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 They, so they claimed that with these marbles that like, they also wouldn't roll or anything like that. Right. Yeah, that's what I I'm saying. do want to bring up though. This was on carpet that they mostly talked about this. Really? Yeah. I thought it was wood. The policewoman specifically said that she placed the marble on the carpet. Mm. And I was like, then it's probably, call me crazy, not going to roll that well. (laughs) Did she place it there or she put glue on it? Maybe. This is also, she, according to what I could tell, she didn't place a marble on the floor to test this. This is 
different than the reporters who did do this. But the, the policewoman, she was the first one to ever try a marble on the floor. And mm-hmm. she did this because the chair slid like four feet. Got it. Putting a marble on the floor to see if the floor is slanted is not going to tell you why a chair <laughs> just slid four feet across the carpet. You gotta respect their logicalness at least a little bit. No, there's no logic. Sure. There's no logic. You know, test the test the slant. I've had better Marbles logic roll. with dumb science rants on this show and our other podcasts, so no. <laughs> so as time went on as well with these flying objects, um, it it seemed like most of the time they were just coming from nowhere, like they were being dropped from the ceiling with no reasonable explanation for that, or they were just coming seemingly out of the walls, being thrown across the room with nobody there. So that's kind of the weird part with that. Like, are they being, are they like materializing and being chucked at people? There's also theories of like teleportation, like maybe they're being picked up from another room and thrown through walls. Yes. (laughs) No, I have one of the audio interviews I um, heard with Guy Playfair and he talked about psychokinesis Mm. or telekinesis, which apparently people will tend to believe more in telekinesis or psychokinesis than they do in poltergeists or hauntings. I can see that. The ability to move shit with your brain instead of being haunted or being possessed. Yeah, which they did kind of actually touch on with this case is they had other people test Janet. And was it also Margaret or just Janet? I think they tested the family in general. Oh, okay. From what I understand. So they tested them on lots of things like that. Like they did a spoon bending test, which I think we will talk about later. Mm-hmm. And We'll talk about all the tests. I think they kind of concluded at some point that they had some kind of psychic something. So at this point, the Daily Mirror, the cops, the people there, everyone's like, well, this shit is fucked up. So what now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, is this where they they get in touch with the... Society for Cyclical Research. Yeah, the the British Society for Psychical Research. Although I must say I hate that word. Uh, Why don't they just call it the Paranormal Society? It's possible that I heard of another podcaster mispronounce it and I just... (laughs) That's ingrained in your brain. Congratulations. I listened to two podcast episodes about this. Yeah. Okay. This has nothing to do with this. I just wanted to say... I realized now that I am drinking from the Ghostbusters mug that I have. So, <laughs> being true. afraid of no ghosts. So, speaking of Ghostbusters, <laughs> so this, I'll use that for a segue. They call in some dudes from the British Society for Psychical Research. And at this point, apparently, the society was kind of like, just kind of like, about doing things. <laughs> um, so, there wasn't very many people who were doing like on-call, in-the-field investigations. But there was this one guy who I feel like Cam probably wants to talk about uh, named Maurice Gross. Ew. (laughs) Why do you like this? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, Maurice Gross. Morris. Morris. That guy. Morris. Morris. (laughs) They pronounce it, I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. That's weird. I was like, you guys are wrong, but whatever. <laughs> Morris, <laughs> gross. 
he was like, hell yeah, I'm going to go out there and do this. I think it was like his first actual like in, in the field case. Now, didn't he have somewhat of an obsession with paranormal activity? I feel like he had more of like a history. He had developed an obsession. You are both correct. Okay. He had developed an obsession with this. This, so this happened through a series of coincidences. Did you guys read about the coincidences? I did. You did. Did you read about the coincidences? I, I listened to many interviews, so I probably heard about it at some point. So basically what had happened is in like the years prior, I don't remember how many years prior, how close it was to this case, Gross had essentially had this whole list of coincidences happen. And I didn't even write down all of them because it's actually more than 10 coincidences, but it's called the 10 coincidences. So these series of coincidences, they begin with his daughter dying. That is the beginning of it. However, they actually technically, they, this was only connected later, but they technically begin the day before. So they begin the day before because he was on a vacation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He was on vacation with his wife. She started feeling sick, which they thought was odd, which is part of the coincidences. These are like, I'm just listing out the main events from this. Then you have his daughter giving his son a card. And on that card, there is a girl with a head injury and also a note that, uh, the, the, the daughter's name is Janet, which is also, which is also part of the coincidence. It's weird. (laughs) But her name is Janet. She gave her brother a card. And on that card, it said, and there won't be much of that left soon either with an arrow that points to the girl's head, which is all bandaged up, which is very odd. Then right after this, she dies in a crash from a head injury. So that's kind of like the whole explosion beginning of the coincidences. One of the other big parts of this was he finds out about her death and then we he wakes up the next morning and his clock had stopped at 4:20 in the morning and that time is right about the approximate time she would have died it was exactly 12 hours the day before actually. right yeah. so that's one of the other ones this kind of this among other things that happened with those there's a whole list of them it was actually more than 10 playfair listed as 10 but there's multiple things he lists out but this all led to him becoming interested in the paranormal and led to a like major obsession with it because he believed that his daughter was trying to communicate with mm-hmm. he and his wife. So he joined the psychical research society as a very low on the ladder guy. Like you just started. Yeah. yeah. He's a total noob. Yeah. So what do you think the qualifications for that are? Nerd. <laughs> Nerd driven. Are you someone who could possibly recently communicate with the dead? Sure. I'll see what I'm contacted. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. I, now I kind of want to figure out, like, how do you apply to be a member of the so- Society of Psychical Research? I think we should all do it together. Carry on. I'm looking. <laughs> <laughs> so, I Google how to join... <laughs> If they're still around. It's probably a membership fee now. Everything is. Oh, yeah. Uh, But anyway, Gross is kind of the noob in this. And so that's why he was kind of like thrown this case. Because it was was kind of like 
oh, hey, this is probably going to be nothing. It's just a family kind of freaking out. So here, we'll send the noob to go on his first investigation. Yeah. And then it ended up being a lot more than that. They said that no one else was interested. Supposedly. So basically, I mean, like he literally got this because he was brand new. And he was stoked. No one else wanted it. They couldn't give it to anybody at least, it seemed like. So he just thrown to the wolves, which he he was excited about. Oh, yeah. He was, he, was he was all in. Yeah. And this ended up lasting about 18 months. So, and at one point, he even moved into the house. I mean, they gave him the extra bedroom. He was there, like, full-time investigator and was joined by Guy Leon Playfair, who, was he with the society, too? I found that kind of hard to find. So, I ended up hearing guy himself in an interview say he met maurice at a like a conference and he or if he was so he was a journalist i don't know how he was connected to the society but he spent a good amount of time studying paranormal activity in brazil okay and he he met Maurice the day before he was supposed to, he was in London. He was supposed to fly back to Brazil the next day and they just happened to cross paths. And Maurice said, check this out. So he's like, okay, I'll check it out. And then he was kind of in and out just as much as gross was. He eventually, it is worth mentioning uh, guy Playfair eventually becomes the vice president of this society. Oh, so, so he did join. Oh, yeah. No, he, he became, like, the big dog. And he's the guy that wrote the book that <gasps> is the only book. Yeah. Oh, what'd you find? Anyone over 16 is welcome to join the SPR. Cool. Can we do it from a distance in America? Membership does not imply acceptance of any particular opinion concerning the nature or reality of phenomena ex- examined. So basically, if you're a nut job, we don't have to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, you receive a quarterly issue of SPR Journal and Paranormal Review. Hey, go down. ahead. Continue. Uh, so, Playfair was brought in, like you said. His biggest thing is evidence. That's what Playfair really likes. He likes to dig into a case, get photos. He also liked quick cases, which is what he thought this was going to be. That's not. Uh, he had just spent a lot of time researching, as we said, in another country. He was home. He's supposed to be home. So he wanted another quick case. Didn't happen. He, this lasted 18 months, and he lived at the house partially every now and then. Too. Oh, he did too? He, okay. he didn't like live there, live there, but he stayed overnight so often that he basically lived there yeah. at that point. He would literally go home for like a few hours and then come back. So he was there a lot. But yeah, it, it is also worth mentioning, uh, they both talked about this case a lot until they passed away. One of them passed away in 2006, which was gross. And the other one passed away in 2018, which was Playfair. So they talked about this all the way up until their death. This was like their biggest case. Gross even said that he used to consistently uh, research like more into his tapes and try and re-listen and try and figure out everything that was going on. That was his top case. So I see something about other society members. Yes. So one of the big things we'll mention before we go into directly, like what Playfair and Gross actually researched and what they did through that, throughout these 18 months 
is originally when they first started researching this, they were fine with other people coming in and investigating. So you had third party researchers, reporters, cameramen, all kinds of stuff. One of those groups of people was actually higher on the ladder SPR members at the time because Playfair and Gross were not high in the research. Yeah. The news. Yeah. They were, they were newer people. They were not considered like the best ghost hunters like they would be later in life, but people higher than them at the time came to investigate as well. Now we'll talk about this more later as well, but it's important to note that the SPR members that came to research this pretty quickly labeled it a hoax. It was pretty fast. Okay. They, they were not happy with the case really. And they didn't think it was interesting. They not only said it was a hoax, but they found evidence that the girls were faking it. Playfair and Gross disagree. They have always disagreed. And they kept going in their research because of that. And because of that, they ended up researching one of the most famous hauntings of all time. So whether or not SPR themselves were actually correct or their two lower end members were correct, we'll talk about, but it's important to note that the, the research organization they're associated with wasn't supporting them anymore. Okay. So that's kind of where they were. Lone wolves. Kind of were lone wolves, but it led to a lot of interesting things. Also, I want to note real quick. I think we already said it, but just one more time. So people know the guy who got hit in the face by the Lego, he comes back and helps them with photography pretty often. Uh, His name is Graham Morris. And he has weird lips. He has weird lips and (laughs) once had a gash right above his eye because of a Lego thrown it at 40 miles per hour. I don't know how, how hard do you have to throw a Lego to injure someone visibly? Ooh, experiment time. Should we write up a report and send it into the SPR for our initiation? (laughs) There's actually a cool photo. It's, And it's where I paused the video interview I found on YouTube. But yeah, heavy furniture being moved and like thrown. And and, um, the photo I'm looking at is like these chairs kind of, maybe they're levitating. I don't know what's happening. But uh, they're not doing things that chairs are supposed to do. Correct. They're not on the ground. And, and, the girls, I mean, so a big part of this whole, the whole question is, these are young girls. They're 11 and 13. How did, you know, they, they're not moving wood furniture by themselves, especially, I mean, there's sure, but not, not even, not dressers and tables and all this. And at one point, I think Guy even says, like, they did play a couple pranks on Maurice, but they were very childish pranks. They weren't like, they weren't very in depth. Yeah. And I think one was just like, Oh, we stole your notebook. Yeah. It's under the bed. Ha ha. So, so it started. Yeah. So the, this whole idea and then, and then the question of why, why would these two young teens think it would be a funny joke to move the furniture? Like who cares? Yeah. And it doesn't really make any sense, like you said, like, because they're so heavy and things are supposedly being, like, picked up and, like, flipped over and, like, thrown all the way across the room. Like, 
I don't even think I can throw a heavy wooden chair across the room. <laughs> um, and there yeah. were a lot of times where people said they saw it and nobody was standing next to the furniture at all. So how did it move? Yeah, that's a not, that's a that's a common witness um, statement of seeing the furniture move when no one's around. So I mean, it's one of the first ones too because the cop yeah. talks about the chair, and apparently nobody was there. Yeah, I don't know. I think this one's this one can be kind of valid because I don't really feel like that the I, I don't know I don't really feel like the girls had a way to set up a good rig to like move furniture and like yank it around. So I don't really have an explanation how they could do that. I definitely would be curious about this, the idea of psychokinesis or telekinesis being researched more because that's definitely... I guess that's a theory. ...a better explanation for the furniture moving and the marbles and Legos and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, like, what what causes a person to have this telekinetic ability? Like, why... Did they talk about that in the book at all? Not that I saw. He brings up the telekinetic stuff, but he doesn't go super far into it. Basically, he brings someone in that he knows to research it. And the guy, I mean, like just to kind of give a summary of multiple pages of a book, he basically just says, it's possible. Like that's <laughs> that's kind of what came out of it. Yeah. I mean, it literally, there wasn't much more than that. Like he brought in an expert which is pretty consistent in the book. The experts they bring in that they do like, the ones that aren't trying to automatically debunk everything, they, oftentimes those experts are pretty much, they come in, they do one test, and they're like, maybe, (laughs) and then they leave. They're relatively thorough for something like this. Okay, so in our notes here, we have this um, kind of bringing up the the fact that there was a younger brother in the house, and he was he wasn't interviewed. He wasn't often um, even part of the the story. Yeah, and which is super weird. Died at 14. Mm-hmm. Does the book explain or does it just say he died? So the book didn't talk about it. He like literally is never really brought up except for like one small section, I think. Yeah. And we actually found that he died on like some on like one website where Janet had said that he died at 14 from cancer. Yeah. And that was only like shortly after all of this had finally like died down. Three years later. Hmm. Okay. And. Or four years later. My bad. He died four years later. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just think it's really weird that they don't talk about the brother and yet he's sometimes in the background in the picture. So it's not like he like wasn't around the sisters at all. Like he was there and um, we can talk about, are we going to talk about it now or later? We can talk about he, it now, yeah, because he, he sometimes is in the background of photos, but sometimes he is weirdly absent, right? But, like, he also did experience some things. Um, he did actually see, like, apparitions. Like, he full-on actually saw things going on. He was involved with all of this. I mean, like my theory earlier, I feel like, if this was made up by the kids, they probably had a way for the little brother to get in the walls. Cause if you look at the pictures, he's pretty tiny. Like he's smaller than both of the girls. Mm-hmm. And he's only like a, I think a year younger than Janet. So if you want to explain the knocking, maybe he could have found a way to get in the walls and he's just like 
running around fucking with everybody knocking. He's like, pay attention. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. I don't even get to be interviewed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, like you said, he's, he's not always there. There was a third brother guys. It's the thing that I think becomes like when, when you're looking at cases like this, you're looking for that one inconsistency that might be able to explain a lot of what is unexplainable. And surprisingly to me, with how much they did research on this and how they spent 18 months doing this, Playfair and Gross don't mention the fact that oftentimes when they're describing what's going on, they say there's knocks and they say, well, it couldn't have been the mom and it couldn't have been the sisters because they're in the room with us. They never say the brother is in the room with them, which I find to be odd. I feel like they're almost ignoring that fact and choosing to not bring it up. I think either he's in the room, but he's just like, it doesn't seem to be connected to the case, so they don't bring him up, or he's just not in the room, they don't really think about it. Yeah, and yeah, because no one thinks about him, because poor kid, <laughs> like literally no one ever brings him up. He's literally in one of the levitation photos, and nobody Screaming. talks Screaming. Everybody, every time I see a description of it, it's like, you can clearly see the sister in the background. What about the tiny child holding on to her? Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> but one thing that I do notice and, and we'll talk more about like what goes into hoaxing this maybe later, but is the knocks that we get again, he's not ever in the room that this is consistently not mentioned that he's in the room, but it seems like he's not. And the knocks, a lot of times they get like very rapid, very like a kid, like going too excited sometimes. I noticed. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me to be more of a kid knocking on the floor and you picking that up rather than a ghost actually responding to you. Yeah. But we will, we will get more into that. But yeah, the brother actually, as much as he's not mentioned, I think that almost makes him one of the most important aspects of this whole story. Mm -hmm. So where is little Johnny and why is he not in this? Yeah, exactly. So it's weird. The whole thing is weird. Hmm. Interesting. Now, we also have, spe speaking of the levitation thing, that's one of the biggest pieces of evidence of this. That's where, that's one of the most famous photos is supposedly a levitation photo. Um, it's on the back of the book. It usually is the only thing that comes up when you search for this case. And on some copies of the book, that photo is the cover of the book. And mm -hmm. it's... Um, so it's, it's a, it's like a picture of Janet and she's like in the air, but she's like upright. She's like vertical, but she looks like she's about to hit the ground or like she's got her arms out and her hair's up. Like she's falling. It just, part of me wants to say, obviously she just jumped off her fucking bed. Cause it looks like she just jumped really high and like is going to hit the ground. But then the story that she says is that she felt cold hands on her, lift her out of bed, and throw her like that. So it wasn't really much of a levitation as it was like a some kind of entity moving her out of bed, supposedly. Right. And so that's like the most popular one. And that one has several pictures because they had a camera in the room set up to take I think it was like four photos every once in a while, and they happen to actually get this happening, which is where mm -hmm. the pictures came from. They, they have more than one set of 
photo. So this happened consistently over the 18 months. She would levitate from the bed. The most famous one is when they set up a camera with no one else in the room. And that's how we got that. However, there is also a photo of the mom in the room. And this is a, from a different set of photos, but Janet is also levitating in this one. The sister's always in the background. She half the time has her hand up for some reason. And the, the most famous ones, which are the color photos, and they show her in like her red nightgown. Those ones are actually a series of pictures, like you said, and they show, we'll talk about it, but they show her stretching from the bed, slowly going up and coming back down in a parabola, which is the equivalent of jumping off of a bed. Right. Very much so. Her legs at one point are fully extended and when she reaches finally getting off the bed and then she lifts her legs underneath her screaming. And then there is another photo where she comes down. It's very hard to find that series of photos. I did manage to find it when I was researching. I can't find it now, but mm-hmm. we I'll try and find it so we can put it up on the, on the yeah, Basically this is a saga of we found a bunch of information and forgot to write down where we found it. <laughs> yeah, and well, just a lot of this is just hard to find too. So you don't write it down immediately and you close it out. Goodbye information. Yeah. And the thing well, that I found really annoying with this is that half of what comes up when you search for Enfield poltergeist or Enfield haunting is the conjuring too, or the conjuring. Yeah. Or bullshit about the Warrens. Yeah. yeah. We can go ahead and just break the ice. Not on the Warrens. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I can, we can just go ahead and say the conjuring is not an accurate film. So if you've seen the conjuring too, you don't know anything about this. Uh, <laughs> it's, it has very, very select few things that happen in real life. And while I love the movie, because I really do, uh, it's not accurate in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. So. But yeah. anyway, as far as levitations, um, I also read another story. I don't remember if this was in the book or not. Uh, but apparently, two people from outside the house claimed to have seen Janet levitating, like floating horizontally, like laying down in the air enough to be seen through the window, like flying around the room, just like Mm -hmm. being thrown around. And these were people who hadn't said anything yet, apparently, or seen anything. It was somebody who lived across the street, I think, and somebody who was walking by who saw it. Yeah, And so then, again, here's two more witnesses who claim to have seen something, but yet there's no like actual evidence of that one. So that sounds more like levitation to me than the other thing. Right. It reminds me of Robert the doll, except for this time. I know they didn't have a big enough dog for her to ride on by the window. So <laughs> possibility that that one's not going to work in this didn't case. didn't have a dog. Yeah, that, I mean, there's there's all kinds of levitation stuff. And then there's Lorraine Warren's account that she supposedly saw both girls levitating and that it was a big thing and that happened all the time. And she says that she saw the girls would, like, levitate out of bed and then, like, cross over each other and land in each other's, like, opposite beds. And Whoa. she is literally the only woman that ever said anything like that. It's not reported in anything else. So yeah, there's there's a legitimate. That's not like an interview that's written down. That's like a video interview. It was actually for the behind the scenes of Conjuring too, which is fun. Oh, Lorraine Warren. Lorraine. <laughs> She's a trip. Right? Yeah, both of them are. Most definitely. A trip. I threw that at the end, so you have something to look forward to, listener. 
Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I don't know if this is considered levitation, but do you remember the the story about her ending up on top of the radio in the room? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she like apparently the first time she did it, only one guy wasn't he a reporter or something? The guy that saw her on top of the radio. He was. I think it was the uncle. Oh, that okay. saw her on top of the radio. There's a picture of him later. I <clears throat> That's think. a different time. Oh, I'm getting things confused. She appears on the radio twice. Yeah. So the first time there isn't a photo. Right. And the uncle finds her like that. And she like, so there's like a radio on a table or something or like a dresser. And it's, the walls are really close. It's kind of like in like a cutout, like nook part of the bedroom. And she is like kind of like face down horizontal over this radio. She has like one leg up on the wall and her head is leaning down over the radio. I mean, it is it is the most possession-looking photo out of everything, I think. bizarre. And to be fair, I don't know how she stayed like that long enough. And then it happens again, and they get a photo. And this time is even weirder, okay? Because, so the story is right before this, there's a picture of Gross holding her, and she's, like, screaming or, like, kind of just having like a meltdown in his arms. Mm -hmm. And they think what happened at that point is she had like a mini seizure and he's like trying to calm her down. And so they actually got like a real doctor to come in and he dosed her with like a full dose of Valium. Yeah. Which should have knocked her the fuck out. It should be said too that the doctor didn't care about this poltergeist thing. In fact, pretty much no doctor that they brought in, like any real doctors, cared at all. They play for it mentions this multiple times. They would bring in doctors or bring her to a doctor and they would talk, try and talk about the poltergeist and the doctors wouldn't even acknowledge them. Yeah. He wouldn't like, they would never say anything to them about it. They would let them leave without ever talking to them about it, having a full conversation. So this doctor comes, he makes a, a home visit, like a house call. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, gives her the value, but he, then he just leaves. He doesn't want to hear about the poltergeist. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't think it's real. He just gives her the volume, says that it was a seizure. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was supposedly brought on by. Guy Playfair mentions that she might have been epileptic, too. So that also might play into why she was having seizures. This is not the only time this happened. This had happened multiple times, and eventually they start bringing in doctors, but at first they're not. It was this one was particularly bad. Which is why they gave her Valium, which, like (laughs) I said, should have knocked her the fuck out. And then shortly after everyone leaves her to sleep, She's found in the same position on top of the radio again. Roughly 40 minutes later. And they didn't hear it. Right. The picture is strange because it looks like she's balancing, like doing like a yoga pose to stay on top of that radio. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really make any sense. Like that is definitely one photo that I'm like, okay, what the fuck? Like that looks kind of like levitation to me. What is yeah. And this is one of the cases. So one thing they do consistently, and I do give credit to Playfair and uh, Gross on this, is they do check her pupils a lot to see if she's actually sleeping or whatever. And one thing they usually say, whether or not it's true, I don't know, is that her pupils aren't dilating, which means she's just like out when they're doing that. Mm-hmm. But they did that for the volume one specifically. And they said that like, there was no response at all. Not even like a minor response. Like she was gone. So 
how she got on top of the radio in a weird position and in the same position she had been up there in before, like a week before mm-hmm. is very strange. Right. Yeah. That's where I'm like, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Like there are definitely are some things that are like, all right, fuck these children. And then there are some things that are like, how did this 11 year old hopped up on Valium, pass the fuck out, get up there with no sound in that weird position and apparently she was still asleep mm-hmm. what yeah. the fuck yeah so spoons. going to the other evidence jen did you read about spoons <laughs> spoon bending yes kind of goes in with your telekinetic yeah so basically more evidence of poltergeist activity they were finding bent spoons but wasn't there like they actually discovered janet trying to bend spoons she was in the kitchen messing around and they were like nope that's not real janet and margaret were both caught bending spoons yeah yeah which is not hard to do i've bent spoons before if you have cheap enough metal you'll you can bend a spoon oh yeah and this was not a rich family and this was in the 70s mm-hmm. i imagine it wasn't very hard to do i think it's funny because it it makes me think of like we were talking about how they did test the girls supposedly for like psychic abilities. And they, there was one guy, I think on one of the first documentaries we watched who supposedly had tested them by telling them to bend a spoon with their mind. And he had taken like readings of their brain waves and saw that like they were getting more and more active. And then he claims that a spoon actually did bend in front of him like one of the girls did it. And so he was like, and in conclusion, that they do have psychic powers or whatever. But that was the only time that I saw anything that actually tried to prove this as a thing. Mm-hmm. Other than that, pretty much the spoons were just kind of fuckery by the kids is what it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Playfair brings this up in the book. He says that sp- the spoon bending for him, it, I almost, a lot of reading this, he doesn't seem like he's behind a lot of this, which I think is funny because he stand, he, he stood so firmly behind it afterwards, after the book came out and stuff like that. But I mean, he was also vice president of the SPR at that point. He's not going to like be like, I kind of doubt the case I worked on that made me vice president of the SPR. Yeah. But he seems to not be fully behind the spoon bending thing at most points. There's only one point that he is. He says that the first real spoon bending thing he saw was he tried to get her to bend the spoon and he was sitting at her at the kitchen table. She's like, from what I can tell, she's basically on his right side or whatever. She's right next to him. And the mother is on the other side. Now he tries to get her to bend the spoon and Janet puts one hand over her eye and reaches out another hand. Now at that moment, Playfair turns because Peggy offers him tea and she's Peggy is looking at the two of them. Guy is looking at Peggy and Janet is behind guy. And then suddenly he whips his head back around to the spoon and it's bent. And he says it couldn't have been more than a second. Please. It doesn't take that long to bend a spoon. And then he turns back to Peggy to see if she saw anything. And she says she didn't now. This is one of those things that either it questions her credibility or she legitimately didn't see anything except the spoon just bending. So it's hard to say. He then says that 
after this happens, he has no idea how this happens. And he said he's seen plenty of fake spoon benders and that this kid like outdoes all of them. But he looks behind her and he says he can't use this one as evidence because he doesn't know when it got put in or when it happened. But there is a metal shelf behind her over like a far away on the side of the room. And one of the shelves has suddenly bent inward. And he said he says he didn't hear it. He didn't notice it before, but for all he knows, it was already there. But he thought it was really weird because she had just bent the spoon. And then right now he also suddenly notices that there is also a bent shelf. So he brings that up as possibly very strange because if it did happen right then, then like there's no physical way Janet could have run over there and bent the shelf. So, and he's like, not the best um, evidence of poltergeist activity, but it's, it's curious. Right. And he, two more things about the shelf. He says one, when he looked at it later, he realized that there's, it would be so hard for just a child to bend the shelf, meaning it would have to take like probably Peggy, Margaret and Janet to bend the shelf in the first place because it's strong, but he doesn't know when it was bent either. And he says that he didn't bring it up to them. That's also a consistent thing with Playfair is a lot of what he noticed while investigating he didn't talk to them about, he didn't want to, I think, influence anything going on to his credit because you yeah. can definitely influence them yeah. in that yeah. case. But yeah, that that's like the main spoon thing. There was something else bent. Allie, you put this in here. <laughs> Speaking of bent things, uh, supposedly, <laughs> supposedly there was a pipe that was ripped from the wall and bent they found on the floor in their bedroom. Now, I also read something else that said this was actually the whole fireplace that was ripped from the wall. Um, so it's, it's hard to say because I found a couple different instances of this. But either way, ripping a pipe from the wall or an entire fireplace, how does an 11-year-old do that? Um, so it's either a ghost or it's telekinesis. Okay. Or it's a pipe that was already bent that was either pulled from the wall because the house is old and everything's torn up. Or it was a pipe that was already bent that actually was never part of the house in the first place. Two possibilities. or telekinesis. Or not a part of the house and the children brought a (laughs) bent pipe into the house. It's possible, whichever one. We can go with whatever one. We could say it was one of the Pokemon, Abracadabra. You never know. (laughs) He was good at spoon bending. He held two and he'd shoot rainbows from them. Yep, they were haunted by Abracadabra. That's it. So, on the list of weird evidence, we have Guy Playfair brings in a group of paranormal researchers that are from Brazil, who we mentioned, uh, Jen, you mentioned that he did research in Brazil, so he knows people around the world. So he brings them in to help him, and one of the things, this is a random note, one of the things that is brought up is that when when Janet is having certain episodes where she's like freaking out, she yells mommy, like mom, like mommy. But the mom claims that she never yells mommy. She only ever says mom. But Guy says that she's not actually even saying mommy. He said it is more equivalent to rhyming with sky. So it's mommy. That's what he says. 
So he brings in these Brazilian researchers, and one of the first things that one of them says, which I think is funny, is that it sounds like she's uh, speaking, was it Portuguese in Brazil? Yes. It sounds like she's speaking Portuguese. She said that that's what they say in Brazil. That's how they say mommy, is like mamai. It was a weird random note. He didn't really say much else about it. He just thought it was weird. And again, he notes he didn't bring it up to them. So, which I, I kind of, it's kind of endearing how he keeps going. I found this really interesting thing. And kept it to myself. But the other thing that they are brought in to do is to do a type of hypnosis. Basically, they put her under and they, they put under the daughter and they have her draw images while she's put under because she's been talking a lot, rambling and mentioning different things she's seeing while she's sleeping. So it's kind of like a sleep hypnosis and okay. they give her a pencil and they have her start drawing. They do this with tons of different images. Uh, they're all very bloody, very violent. And I mean, they're just like gruesome in general. They're not very, it's not like they're like super well detailed. Yeah. Like it's not like I a Renaissance painting. Pictures. They're, yeah, you did. They're, they're very childish, but they are there. There's like a whole bunch of them. One of the images that she drew had the name Watson at the bottom. Now this becomes important later because she then she, this is hypnosis and they pull the pictures away from her as she's drawing them. So technically she doesn't know what she drew in theory. Okay. And then they pull her out of hypnosis and they don't tell her what she did, what they did. And they never tell her what, what they did because they thought it would be too gruesome to show her for one. And they didn't want to influence anything for on the other hand. Now, eventually she ends up bringing up the name Watson. Now I remember why it's important. She brings it up as one of the voices that she hears in her head. The name is changed in the book. It's Wilkins. Wilkins. Oh, cause Bill Wilkins. <laughs> cool. All For right. some reason in the book, he changes literally every name mentioned. Including the possession names. Like the names of the spirits. For the some reason protect their identity right i don't know why he does that he but didn't he do it to janet though every single name except for janet and peggy yeah it's even margaret is is she's called rose in the book right yeah she's called rose it doesn't make any sense i don't know why he did that but yeah the name is actually wilkins so okay. Okay. so it wasn't watson erase that from your brain and it was Wilkins. Now, Wilkins is important because it's mentioned as one of the most important names that's actually in her head. And that name is Bill Wilkins. Now, in the book, he changes Bill to either Fred or Frank. It's one of the two. So, Again, why? Who knows? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. About it, when he's inter doing interviews... Huh, weird. Okay. They, they were doing news reports at the time mm -hmm. who were reporting on the real names. So it was almost like he wrote this book knowing that normally you would change the names to protect like the witnesses identity. Then he just did it with everything for no reason. Maybe it was, I don't know. Maybe he was doing it like as a mockery. Uh, who knows? Right. It's weird. But anyway, Bill Wilkins becomes very important because she mentions it later and that becomes like the foremost voice coming out of her. Yeah. But to him, this was one of the biggest pieces of evidence he presents in this book because Wilkins is this thing that she shouldn't have known about. So in his mind, it proves that there's a voice in there because while under hypnosis and not being able to remember what she drew, she writes down the same name that she's hearing in the back of her head as the same 
creature, person, whatever, that's tormenting her on the inside. And that becomes like one of his most defining pieces of evidence. And it leads into what becomes the conversations and what plays out with those. Leading up to the voice, initially Gross tried to, so he like, he kind of thought with the knocking, maybe he could communicate with it. And so he thinks maybe if I invent a yes or no system, we can have a conversation with this thing. So he asks it to knock twice for yes and once for no. And so then he kind of just starts asking it a bunch of like yes or no questions. So he finds out through the knocks that this is a male spirit. Um, it died in the house and that's where it came from. And it is basically just having fun fucking with the family. It's my favorite part. It's like, I, I don't, I'm just being a shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He asked them, I think twice. Um, like, why are you here? Is it just to bother these people? And the knocks always happen twice. Yeah. Like, yep, that's why I'm here. Can't tell me otherwise. And so basically they gather supposed information from the spirit or the poltergeist this way. And what kills me about this is in an interview that I watched where, was it Playfair interviewing the kids? It was a news reporter interviewing the kids okay, so with was... Playfair and Gross sitting on both sides. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So there's like an interview video where they are talking to Janet and Margaret. And at one point, Janet says something like she overheard Gross say, you know, now all we need is a voice. And then subsequently after that, we start hearing Bill coming out of her mouth. Yeah. And on that cliffhanger, <laughs> we're going to make this a two-parter. Yeah. Dude. This is a little long, so we decided, which I was already wondering if it was going to happen. It's a long story, and there's a lot that happens, and we still have to go into all kinds of things, but we're definitely going to start off with the voice next time. Which yeah. is one of the most interesting. So Spooktober's been extended. Yeah. <laughs> because October never gets to just die peacefully. No. Everybody's like, October's over. It's Christmas. It's not. It's not Christmas. We'll so, see you in November, bitches. Yeah. So <laughs> we're gonna extend that. Like always, find us on social media, right? You can find us on Twitter. We are on Facebook. Uh we are on all of your favorite podcasting apps. If you find us there, that's where we are. So Cam is really good that. at outros. I'm the best at outros. They're never like five minutes long. <laughs> so I'm gonna say goodbye, so long, Sayonara. I'm Cameron. That's been Allie. And thank you, Jen, for being back <laughs> on again. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And she'll be back next week. Yeah. Woo! Right, and all of you will be not back next week too, or I will tell Robert the doll to come find you. <laughs> Conspiracy say goodbye. Did you say also stay, stay fishes. That too. Yeah.